These episodes feature contemporary artists presenting the latest exhibitions and projects. This podcast is brought to you by the Peritin Gallery, based in Paris, Hong Kong, New York, Seoul, Tokyo, and Shanghai. You know, this is 15 years since my first exhibition, which was in the exact same space. And uh, it's amazing as an artist to grow kind of up with a gallery in a way, and also to have uh, the support, right, of all of the staff here uh, from the gallery, as well as my own staff, who helped execute um, these exhibitions. In addition, um, I'm gonna get into this later, but this project was um, a bit different for me because all of the works, except for the drawings, were produced here in France in the RMN workshop. And I've never made anything in this way outside the studio like that. So I, I'm very grateful um, to all of them as well. So I, th I figured that the way that we can structure this talk, um, I kind of shortened down um, the typical lecture that I did to go through some of the earliest works and how I arrived at this place. And um, we're fortunate to have Ludovic here um, to also shed light on some of the works that I've remade um, that are from uh, classical antiquity as well. So jump in whenever you want, yeah. Uh, so I studied actually um, painting in school, not sculpture, and many of the earliest works that I produced were a mixture of architecture and landscape. And often these works were mixing the two, um, creating a kind of fictional narrative in a way where the architecture was often in a state of decay, but also looked perfect. So you could have this sense that the architecture was either falling apart or it was actually in the state of being, uh, being built. Um, I grew up in, in Miami, uh, very much in the, the natural part of Miami, not everything that you see when you go for Art Basel. Um, really like in the swamp, and this place was very productive to me as, uh, as an idea in my work, and I made a lot of paintings uh, about this place. One of the things that um, was important to me in a lot of the early works was this insistence that the works could kind of float in time. So there was never images of people uh, or, or any other references to a particular moment. So you could look at this work, you could say, the object or the architecture in it was maybe human made, but you couldn't say the time period. It could have been a thousand years in the future or a thousand years in the past. Um, and that idea about a kind of dislocation of time within the works has been prevalent in my practice uh, for the last uh, 20 years. Following um, this kind of alteration of the landscape, you know, this was a, a very early series of paintings that were kind of my first, um, and, and in a way very much related to the works here in the show, my first um, kind of stab at the alteration of, of a historical nature, right? So um, going back into uh, to works from antiquity. I don't know if you want to say anything particularly about this work. Yes, um, I knew it a little bit later uh, you produced it in 2010, if yeah. I remember well. Yeah. And um, I got it by friends from Palais de Tokyo, uh, maybe seven years later. But it was the first time that you came up in our field mm. in the Louvre, because uh, even though we are supposed to be extremely conservative, we look carefully at 
what's coming up concerning the reception of antiquity. And I was very uh, pleased to, to see this very efficient uh, relationship between uh, a, a standard for us in the, the Capitoline Museum and your sense of architecture. So um, that was my one of probably my first experience about your work, mm. uh, if not the first one. Mm. So these are works actually from the first exhibition that I did, uh, the first solo exhibition that I did with Emmanuel um, in 2005. And the works were, if you imagine the paintings as a kind of natural scenario with an architectural uh, kind of intervention within them, the, the, architect the uh, architectural works were the opposite. So it was an, an architectural scenario with a natural kind of decay or formation happening within them. But you can still see this idea that the columns look broken, but they could also be growing together, right, to some kind of uh, completion. And I began experimenting a lot with this kind of decay um, into the surface of architecture. This was um, a work shown at uh, PS1 in New York uh, in 2005 as well. And thinking also about, you know, when, when we think often about sculpture, there's sort of two general processes that we think about. A an additive sculpture, which would be like taking s clay and forming it, or a subtractive sculpture, which would be like a block of stone and you find the work within that. This was a, a project thinking about architecture in that way. So I began with a solid and excavated out um, this space uh, over the course of six weeks. I've done similar things uh, more recently thinking about um, furniture in this way. So starting with a block, carving some out, sitting in it, carving more. Um, but this idea about subtraction and, uh, and addition has been prevalent um, in the work throughout. A little conversation in between working. A <laughs> um, little over 10 years ago, I made a trip in Easter Island, which is a, a very isolated island in the South Pacific that has a series of um, stone statues, which are, um, I would say, I don't know if you agree, but one of the few points of real dispute about the origin of the statues, about how they were made, how they were transported, and this discussion um, is kind of ongoing. And I found that um, in archaeology, we, we are told a story, and the story is inherently a piecing together of different clues. Sometimes we have a lot of clues, and sometimes we have less. And that idea about archaeology becoming a kind of narrative and something that we could think of as being constructed in the future, um, I started to think a lot about reverse engineering archaeology. So could I take something from the present and sort of artificially push it into the future? Um, certainly I could have taken an object and kind of painted it to look uh, old, um, but for me, it was always about a kind of material transformation. This is one of the first objects that I made of that, uh, of that series that I considered a completed piece, um, which was made of crushed uh, stone and was reformed into the, the, the image of a camera. Um, certainly, I could have taken the original camera and kind of painted it 
to look old, like a trompe l'oeil effect, but something about the, the kind of material quality of these works and the works which you'll see uh, in the exhibition also kind of tells a story, right, about um, the objects. They're not just degrading, they're made of crystal, um, which is a, a material that we associate with a kind of, uh, like a geological um, time frame. And so the objects that I picked were often very iconic uh, things, things that we would associate with uh, a particular time period that we know were located not 500 years ago, right? They're, they're uh, identifiable. And they were also identifiable kind of globally. So I've always um, made a point to kind of pick things that uh, when I would show in Brazil or in Japan or here in, or in New York, they kind of mean a similar thing. Obviously this work shown here or in New York or in Tokyo, anywhere, we know what it is, we know where it's from, we know the era in which it was, and for many of us it represents a certain uh, kind of thing. So I experimented a lot with material transformation using a number of different materials in the work um, and expanding the scale also of these pieces. This was the first instance in which you know, I had created the, the archeological object and this was a, a kind of fictional archeological site in which the floor was actually dug out and underneath um, were thousands of these objects reformed in volcanic ash and, and crystal And I think any time that you have the, the opportunity to, to kind of look at objects from your own, your own life, right, your own experience with this kind of biz bizarre uh, perspective of time, there's a, a, a strange dislocation about that. Um, it can be uncanny, you know. I mean, this object is already a, a future relic. It's only, you know, 30 years old. And also thinking about, you know, more um, kind of pop cultural icons that represent something as well. So in the selection of uh, objects for an exhibition, I often f um, tried to focus them down into a group of things that had a, a kind of like-minded um, relationship. So things related to sports, things related to music, um, made a whole show, um, actually this one is more, more related with our discussion. I forgot this slide was in there. Um, this work you saw as well. Yes, yes. Actually, that was also something that has been provided by my colleagues of Palais Tokyo, I remember <coughs> that, because um, the model is very famous for us. This one. Of course. It's, uh, it's a total landmark of uh, Hellenistic, Hellenistic sculpture. And what I thought, but it is only my point of view, and I'm not in your head, uh, is that, well, it's a good choice because if you consider um, Greek sculpture generally as a whole, uh, most of the stances are uh, more idealistic. In this case, this is a very peculiar moment of Greek sculpture where you show the enemy, basically a, um, a barbarian, uh, about to die or dying. So why this is why the title of the piece is The Dying Goal. And in a way, this is 
more endable to, to get a balance between um, an icon of antiquity and the, the way to reset it in a different form because the, the sense has something more in common with uh, what we can figure out altogether. Yeah. But maybe I'm wrong. It, it, it struck me as quite rare, the position, mm -hmm. certainly. And you know, uh, the direct relationship with this kind of contemporary figure that obviously sandals and Nikes, it's a, it's, it's a different um, you know, kind of era. Um, I wouldn't say, obviously, you're, you're here as the scholar, uh, that my knowledge about the position of it was more intuitive than it was about mm -hmm. uh, a, a kind of total selection, right? Mm -hmm. um, so let me get through um, kind of the rest of these and then we can talk about the works um, in the show. But obviously, you know, these markers of an era um, were important to me to interject um, within the work. So in the selection of objects, you know, I was often very interested in thinking about icons, right, of a particular era. And I knew I wanted to do a car at some point. And being a fan of cinema, uh, this car is both an icon uh, in its own right, right? The DeLorean was this kind of failure of a futuristic uh, concept to begin with, um, but also an icon uh, in cinema. Um, so I, I did make a, a complete work uh, out of this, um, which was the largest kind of cast uh, sculptural object that I had made at that point. And in order to make this, we actually had to disassemble the entire car, take the engine out, cast every section, and then reform it back onto uh, the existing uh, chassis. Um, this work was originally shown uh, two years ago in an exhibition in Emmanuel's Gallery uh, in New York, um, along with another car, um, which is this famous one. Too bad the sound is not working on here, but we know the story about the car in this one, the 1961 uh, Ferrari GT, uh, which was extremely rare, and only 55 of these cars had been produced uh, originally, so obviously very difficult to, to come across one of these. So in researching the film, the car that he's kicking is not a real 1961 uh, Ferrari. Uh, they hired a, 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 um, a, a prop master to create a mold of an actual w uh, car that they had. So that when you see the car earlier in the film parked in the garage, that's the real car. They made a mold of that and created two working replicas of the car. In the end of credits of the film, I found this guy. I tracked him down, and he still is around. And I called him up, and I said, do you have the mold by any chance of the 61 Ferrari? He said, yeah, I have this mold. So I made the mold, uh, I made the work based on not only the the original 61 Ferrari, but it's the exact one from the, the film as well. This is a, a recent project in China, in Shanghai, um, kind of expanding on this idea about the archaeological site, right? A total reimagination um, of the archaeological site where each day um, these objects were uncovered, um, brought into a, an adjacent laboratory, um, where they were actually, you know, the broken pieces were kind of reformed, maybe similar to, uh, to what you this guys is do. A, this is uh, the, 
the way we do when we excavate ourselves and every day you go on the field, you grab something else and you go to the lab during the afternoon after a na nap. Basically you mm. wake up very early, yeah. you try to find something, then you nap because you're dead mm. and then you go to the lab and you reform things and you try to find the fragments to that fit together mm. to reconstruct a form. So to me, it was a, in a very uh, symbolic way, mm. uh, maybe not on purpose, but the qu quite the logic that we have on the field yeah. uh, when we excavate in Greece or in Asia Minor, for instance. Yeah. Next time I do this, I have <laughs> to add the nap in to the, <laughs> yes. the procedure. But this is what, <laughs> so the laboratory was, was completely constructed and really like I tried to complete, uh, complete this kind of full fiction, mm -hmm. right? Where um, we produced um, these kind of checklists and documents that every single object was cataloged, given a reference number, exactly placed the in the shelf, all of mm -hmm. that. So as close as I could get without ever having been in, mm -hmm. uh, in one of those places. Um, and we, we further confused the time period by having all of the computers in there being 1983 working mm -hmm. uh, Mac, Mac computers. <laughs> These were the um, carbon copy uh, sheets mm -hmm. that the people working would make the drawing, archive it, all of that. So now we arrive to, to this exhibition. So as I said before, um, I'm working on, on a, an exhibition here in a, in a very large encyclopedic museum in France um, for later this year. And I went to visit the, uh, the warehouse where they keep all of the molds. And why do they make these molds? So one obviously is an area of study mm -hmm. so that these can be distributed to other schools and things like that. And the other is one of like uh, preservation, right? Um, to, to ensure that these works, nothing's ever gonna happen to the Venus de Milo, but mm -hmm. that it's, it's protected in that way. Um, and when I arrived, uh, I was looking primarily at Asian antiquities, mm -hmm. but I saw all of these objects from Greek antiquity and other things, and I sort of said like, can I use that for this project? And I think some of them are here. They were, I could tell they were a little bit skeptical of my, my process, but um, over time we convinced them. And also the material that I use for my casting is different from what they would ever apply to their molds. So mm -hmm. there was a process of testing. So I made um, a selection of works and made studies of all the drawings. So these drawings, you'll, you can see them in the exhibition. And they usually include um, some kind of notes. Um, typically I'll make these drawings in the studio because when we do the casting, the mold is closed so we cannot see inside of it. And in order to prepare for that, I make drawings of the location of where I want the erosion to happen. At, for aesthetic reasons in some way and other, others are structural reasons, right? Mm -hmm. If I make a huge erosion on one part of a limb, it's gonna be fragile on the other end. Um, and I haven't ever shown these uh, drawings before, and it was kind of a last minute addition to the show, but one of the interesting things about seeing them in the context of the show is the kind of fictional narrative also that's written into the, to the works. Um, and the, the sort of selection of works that I made, some of which are from, the, from your collection at the Louvre, um, and others are, f are 
hugely famous works from, um, from classical antiquity. Um, this work is a drawing of the, the Melpomene, um, which has its own sort of interesting complex uh, history. Um, maybe we, we should uh, discuss the, let me see if I have the Melpomene. Uh, or maybe Lucius Verus, maybe we want to discuss this one a little bit. Yes, why not? Um, what you should know, we didn't discuss, uh, as uh, Daniel said, uh, before the selection, we met later on. Mm -hmm. So there, there is no, in this selection, selection there is no scholar uh, guidelines. And to us, it's super interesting to, to figure out how you select your PCs mm -hmm. in uh, RMN uh, storerooms. Uh, which uh, embodies a classical antiquity according to you. Mm. As a result, it's exactly what we would select to have a good, uh, a good um, range. range. Yeah. And um, this one is a very uh, emblematic portrait of Lucius Verus, who is a good guy, but, but maybe we, you didn't know that. That is, um, but because in your selection, <laughs> You have the scope, you have the good guy and the bad guy. You have Lucius Verus, who uh, has been adopted by uh, Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher, emperor. Uh, he should have been a very nice emperor and so on, but he died, uh, unfortunately, uh, too young at a uh, uh, young age. And then the Roman por uh, issued portraits to celebrate the emperor he could have been, actually. This is a, a post-mortem uh, portrait. And later on in your selection, we see Caracalla, who is definitely one of the tougher emperor uh, of the Roman history. So it was interesting also for me that you pick up possibly uh, without uh, any, any intention, some uh, very uh, different uh, state of mind concerning uh, Roman sculpture. And there is also the, the idea of the scale, because this one is colossal. Um, and I've, I noticed that um, you, you had a very careful look at um, scales concerning our collection or the reproduction of our collection in the RMN uh, storeroom. And this one is exceptional for that too. And uh, maybe it goes very well uh, along with the Melpomen that we're going to see later on. And yeah. um, I mean, one, of, one of the things was, when you see many of these works in the museum, the position of them is um, important, right? Mm -hmm. So th if they're at eye level, it's meaning one thing, they're elevated, it's another. And also the taste of this, you were talking to me yesterday mm -hmm. about how in the 19th century, if you visited the Louvre, many of the works that you can see today, which are low, were actually on like very tall uh, yes. pedestals. So the Lucius Verus, which you'll see in the, in the gallery exhibition, this one is quite low. Um, it's face to face, you can see it um, up close. The other thing that I changed, you know, this was obviously cast off of a larger work, right, at some point. And I, the base of these, which is a more kind of neoclassical base with a, a plaque, I, I uniformly made all of the bases in the exhibition the same. So they're all this very kind of simple um, square uh, base. Um, so this is the Melpomene. It's, a, it's just a bust of the, of the figure, but the original, I did put a picture in here. Let me, sorry, I'm skipping around, but uh, this is the original Melpomene, um, which, was, which is a work from antiquity, mm -hmm. but 
wasn't found like that. <laughs> yes, um, there was also this point. You're changing the form of um, the sculpture that we know, but it is also important to understand, and maybe this is not quite clear for any, anybody which I would understand quite well, that they have a long history already. And this one has been found uh, in Campo Martio in Rome, uh, next to the Pompeii Theater, which was the first and biggest uh, Roman theater made of stone uh, during Roman antiquity, uh, first century BC. And this, this muse was part of the decorum of this uh, theater. And uh, it, was it has been found with the head and the body, but not the arm. So the, um, the arms and the mask of the tragedy are eight, uh, a restoration of the 18th century. And the statue became famous as a whole like that. Yeah. And then you choose part of the statue for your own work. So to me, this is this way the, the antique mm. go from one state to the other, which makes sense totally. But, but sometimes, you know, for me, the other kind of larger project about this and where I saw an opportunity uh, in this project is many times when we visit a museum, the description of the work, the position of it in time is mm -hmm. told to us and we sort of take it as definitive. Mm -hmm. But as we discussed, the opinion about the origin of the objects, its position in time, even the rest, the idea about restoration, you know, this work was, as you say, restored yes. in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So the arm was added with the mask, but the mask didn't exist and was a kind of invention of whichever artist did that, right? Yes, and it's not, and actually it's not a right restoration. It's surely a muse, but it's probably not Melpomen, the tragedy uh, muse. It's more probably a terp. And in the 18th century, uh, for the worst or the best, they always tried to make uh, an antique complete. Sometimes they were accurate, sometimes they made some mistake. And in this case, they should have had uh, two arms with two uh, pipes for a terp. Um, nowadays, we do not touch so much the 18th century, 17th or 18th century uh, implement anymore. But during the 20th century, there was a huge campaign to remove it. Uh, to remove the, to the remove restoration. That yeah. is what we call uh, unrestoration or de-restoration. And um, it could this have been also, the, the, yeah. it could have been the case for the Venus d'Arles. Yeah. Um, it's a very famous antique uh, found in Arles, in the theater of Arles in uh, 1651. And then uh, in Arles, they understood that it would be a good idea to, to send it to Louis XIV to be well in, uh, in court. Um, so it became uh, a, um, a masterpiece of the Galerie des Glaces in Versailles, and the first uh, sculptor of Louis XIV, François Girardon, was hired to complete the statue and invent the two arms. Um, in the mid-20th century, we were, we, the Louvre, the firm, <laughs> we were about to remove these uh, complements because they are not so accurate. Um, uh, typical Venus wouldn't have two attributes, but only one, not the golden apple and the mirror in the same time. 
So when you read the archive, uh, you, can, you, can, you can understand that there was a debate to maybe remove those uh, compliments. But because it was François Girardon and Louis XIV, the, the, I would say the weight of yes. history was too strong. So uh, it's, it's true that, um, well, we are talking about uh, what do we do with these icons and uh, is it possible to change it? I answered, uh, no, I received just before coming uh, a message on my telephone because I posted one of this picture. Yeah. And the sculptor, probably very academic, was terribly upset. <laughs> and he said, uh, but how just dare you, you uh, curator of a national museum, support such a process because um, it's not possible to touch uh, antiquity and masterpieces. Uh, it's, it's, well. Did you remind him about Girardin? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, well, it's, it's just first super conservative, but it's not surprising. On the other hand, it's, um, it's uh, a good um, clue um, to understand that most of the audience does not understand that even the antique is something flexible and endable and it has changed and sometimes we restore it and we change it again. So your process to us is totally logical because even, even if an antique is not ever, uh, should be everlasting, it's a moving it's a mo moving body in a way. I mean, that's why this work for me was one of the more complex and interesting works in the exhibition. Has all of this history bound up with it. As you said, it was found. It's a work from antiquity. It's, mm -hmm. it's like um, over 2,000 years yes. old, I guess. When it was restored, so we talked about the addition of the, of the arms. The, there were cracks in the folds of the fabric as well, which were uh, 18th century additions, as well as the position of the head, right? So when you mm -hmm. see the work in the gallery next door, look closely at the neck, because you can see the, the repair of the neck is present in the, the sculpture. Mm -hmm. But the decision to, so you have a work from antiquity, which was then altered or restored in the 18th century, and th the 20th century, de-restoration of it mm -hmm. only removed the things that they thought were not kind of important yeah. to it, which we is, it's just, a, it, when we think about history, I like this idea that this is a proof of its flexibility mm -hmm. in a way. Yes, yeah, so the only thing what we did, it was in the late 80s, I was not in charge, it was my <laughs> professor. Um, we only changed the position of the head because we knew that it was a difficult part of the statue for Girardon. So we remove the head and uh, we try to find the very uh, right uh, contact points and we sli slightly change the direction of the head and, and you knew the record. I was delighted to know that actually. And uh, so it's, it's a good example of this flexibility. But on the other hand, you know that uh, to me, this picture is also a little bit a uh, nightmare because I'm a curator. It's, <laughs> well, changing the pieces, it's nice, but uh, our DNA is to keep the piece. O of course, we can change the restoration, we can unrestore and so on, but the original surface, we have to, to keep it as it is. Um, and and you, 
you imagine what it could be uh, in 1,000 years when, uh, when the museum is almost destroyed. So to me, of course, it's a little bit striking, but in uh, 3,020, I will be dead. Yeah. <laughs> These are some images that you brought up. Yes, uh, it was my little contribution because uh, when, when we look at, at your pieces uh, together, I thought to myself, well, there, we, there is also a natural way to, um, to get uh, this type of effect, I mean, um, um, an erosion, uh, and especially uh, concerning um, antique marble that you find in shipwreck, because they are under the sea, the statue stay or lay under the sea, and this is a wonderful case because they stayed under the sea, half under the, su the sand, half in the, in the water, the salted water, actually. And um, during many years in, in the National Museum in Athens, those statues were not so well praised because there was, they were altered. But nowadays, they, they become famous because this half-half situation, like a, like a joker statue, is becoming very seducing. Uh, so there are the statues from Antiquitera. And this is not exactly a, comp a total comparison with your work, but it's, it's not so far. And maybe this is even better. The other one that you gave me was... A little bit later. Yes. This is, um, this is a portrait of the Emperor Augustus, the first emperor of the Roman Empire, that has been found uh, in Foss near uh, Marseille in uh, 1987, if I remember well, by a fisherman. So by a pure matter of chance. And uh, now it's in the Musée uh, de l'Art Antique in Thousand France. It's a colossal head. So it's like type of the scale that like you Lucille. choose, yes, for Melpomene, Lucius Verus, and Lucilla, ah. especially Lucilla. That piece came to the Louvre for an exhibition uh, five or six years ago. Uh, I knew it, but it was the very first time uh, we put it on display in the Louvre. And in this case, the, er the er erosion is very close to your taste, especially when you see the details, because um, this is because of salt, but, but also because of uh, sea worms that, that produce those little holes. And on the cheekbone, here on the right, you can see that under the surface, you can imagine the structure of the, of the marble itself and this network of, of crystal, which is not so far from all the quartzite and the crystal that you include in your work. And for me, I, I don't know if it's, but it's only my uh, opinion as a scholar uh, dealing with antiquity. Um, you're dealing with uh, copies uh, in limestone or uh, in plaster, produced by uh, Réunion des Musées Nationaux. So you got the best workshop in the world, by the way, <laughs> because uh, we work with them and they are the only one to touch our originals. But um, the original is in marble, and the marble uh, is a very special and beautiful stone. It's the reason why the Greeks were just in love with marble. It's because it's metamorphic. It's crystallized. and your mix of uh, plaster and, and uh, quartzite and crystal 
uh, it's a way to, for me, to, to, refer, to refer to the original in a very uh, beautiful way because it's not literal, it's like a contrast. And in this case, uh, this is what you see uh, naturally. That is why I picked up this picture to show it to you. So maybe the last work that we can talk about, which is actually the oldest work um, in the exhibition, is this uh, piece. Mm -hmm. um, so in the selection of images, as you were saying before, part of the reason I picked certain works was the period of time in which they were made. Others were based on an aesthetic uh, decision. Mm -hmm. So some works in the exhibition are very well known and others are, are more um, uh, unknown. In fact, the Caracalla you said was part of the Louvre collection, but not even on view, right? No. This one was selected because actually it's the oldest work um, in the exhibition. And as you say, it forms a kind of bridge between two sort of eras of, mm -hmm. of uh, sculptural, like Greek sculptural tradition. Mm -hmm. um, th so this was my version of it. This is the original, which is uh, yes. in the Louvre. Yes, this is in the very middle of of our first gallery in the Greek and Roman department. And I was very surprised to see it in your selection. Then I understand, I understood that your, your time mm. scope uh, was, was pretty wide. But maybe by a pure matter of chance, or I don't know, you picked up what, what is a total landmark for us because the Lady of Auxerre is, uh, is understood as the first uh, comeback to Greek people to sculpture, because we all know the Cycladic sculptures, the very beautiful pure forms from the third millennium BC, but this is Bronze Age, and this is not really Greek civilization. Then there is a big gap, and then little by little, the Greeks uh, start, uh, start again to produce some sculpture in, uh, in limestone to start not in, in marble because it was too difficult for them. They started with limestone. So this one, um, any student in, uh, dealing with Greek art in School of the Louvre, for instance, for to quote the one that I, I try to, um, to focus on th this type of pieces, should know it, but it's not very well known. I guess that in the audience, Lady of Ozer is not uh, a total uh, best. But it is actually. So by maybe by chance or because you have a, a good radar, <laughs> uh, you choose uh, basically the very one, the first, the first in line when you study, uh, um, I would say, a, a book about, uh, about Greek sculpture. You start with that. And for you, what, what's so extraordinary about this work? In, in relation to some of the Cycladic pieces or the, the works following? Because this is uh, 7th century, I it's think? 7th century BC, it's the moment um, Greek cities uh, reform themselves and try to, to get organized to, to have workshops and to produce a new sculpture. And um, they are not so, so well advanced. And um, to me, what is important also is that um, in Western country, we have a, a notion of Greek art as something wonderful, the roots of our civilization, or the forgotten roots nowadays, probably, but still. And uh, it's a total mistake because the Greeks themselves 
understood clearly that other civilization around, especially East, were m uh, much more, uh, much uh, well uh, advanced. advanced, thank you. And this sculpture, which is the starting point of Greek sculpture, so some say Western, Western civilization, and we live in a super-focused Western-oriented uh, way of thinking, is uh, quoting an Egyptian uh, wig and a Syrian uh, belt. So it's also important that it, the to understand sculpture that is actually referencing things before. It's it, it, yeah. it referencing to something that exists before. And I again, you you play with uh, or you act with um, with a material which is already the result of a long process. And to me, it's uh, totally meaningful. But to me. Okay, so I think we're kind of at the point where we can sort of open it up, unless there was anything mm -hmm. specific you wanted to do. Um, I don't know if there's uh, any questions. Um, um, I just want to maybe, I wanted to pay a tribute to you. There is a very last one. This one? Okay. Yes. Um, this is a painting in the Louvre by John Paolo uh, Panini, painted in uh, 1756 or 8, I don't remember anymore. During the 18th century, it was super fashionable to, to have this type of painting with all the antiques that were very famous in Rome, like the Laocoon, the Borghese vase, the Medici vase, um, the Apollo from the Belvedere, and you see all those actual antiques around the painting itself. And um, in the selection, on the first uh, plan, you see your dying goal. So it's a way to go back to your first, one of your first uh, connection with antiquity. Yeah. And I guess also that in a way, this exhibition on a very different level is a little bit a panini, but a very personal one. So, and f for my part, this is a compliment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you all so much um, for coming. Yes, merci. Les...